We believe the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a restoration of the original Church established by Jesus Christ, which was built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We declare to the world that the fullness of the gospel has been restored to the earth. We declare with boldness that the keys of the priesthood have been restored to man. We declare to the world that this is the day referred to by biblical prophets as the latter days. It is the final time before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign on the earth. So these sections are kind of a little bit of a challenge because there's not a whole lot of meat on this bone. Obviously, there's still stuff to talk about, and there's still interesting background story, but there's almost more background than there is actual text in the section. Looking at the book Joseph Smith's Revelations for Doctrine and Covenants, section 14, it says, David Whitmer had heard about Joseph Smith in the fall of 1828 when rumors about Joseph Smith's retrieval of the plates circulated widely in the Palmyra, New York region. While in Palmyra, Whitmer discussed the story of Joseph Smith and the plates with Cowdery and others, but initially supposed it was a rumor. Cowdery, who was acquainted with the Joseph Smith senior family, told Whitmer there must be some truth to the story of the plates and that he intended to investigate the matter. Several months later, Cowdery informed Whitmer that he had intended to go to Harmony to see Joseph Smith about the plates. On his journey, Cowdery stopped in Fayette to visit Whitmer and promised to write him regarding what he learned. Cowdery sent at least three letters to Whitmer from Harmony, the last of which directed Whitmer to bring his wagon to Harmony and move Joseph Smith and Cowdery to Fayette. Aided by what they considered divine manifestations, the Whitmers quickly became followers of Joseph Smith. David Whitmer later recounted that during their journey to Fayette, he, Cowdery, and Joseph Smith briefly encountered a pleasant, nice-looking old man, whom Joseph Smith identified by revelation as a heavenly messenger transporting the plates. Whitmer also recalled that soon after their arrival in Fayette, his mother, Mary Musselman Whitmer, was met by the same old man who showed her the plates. Joseph Smith's history recorded that David, John, and Peter Whitmer Jr. became our zealous friends and assistants in the work, and being anxious to know their respective duties and having desired with much earnestness that I should inquire of the Lord concerning them, I did so, through the means of the Urim and Thummim, and obtained for them in succession the following revelations. So I, I wanted to share that because it kind of gives us a little bit of an idea of who these Whitmer people are, right? They were kind of like a little bit skeptical, thought it was a rumor. I imagine they were like everybody else in the area. They'd heard about Joseph. They'd heard about the plates. They were kind of like, eh, I don't know what this really means. They knew Oliver Cowdery. Cowdery was like, hey, I'm going to go look into this. It's funny that he sends three letters and the last one is like, all right, you need to come and, and get me and Joseph and take us to Fayette so that we can finish this work. Reason why is they were having some issues with uh, Emma's father, Isaac Hale, and um, a couple of other people in the area that were getting a little bit bothered by their presence. And they weren't able to focus. And so they, were, they wanted to be uh, moved to Fayette so that they could finish the work. But with that in mind, like they, they started to become, what was it? zealous friends and assistants in the work and like everybody else up to this point they start kind of asking you know what's what is my role what 
what does the Lord want me to do? And I think that is such a natural question. I think it's one that maybe many of us have had also. You know, what am I supposed to be doing? Am I am I on the right track or should I be doing something more? And so that's that's where we get essentially sections 14, 15, and 16 uh, that kind of answer that question. And nothing really earth-shattering in those sections except uh, the same message to us as well, right? There's a marvelous work is about to come forth. If you're if you want to be involved with this, the field is white and all ready to harvest, right? Become involved, engage, keep going. Yeah, I think um, I thought it was interesting too that that this was a time when it it mentions in the history that prophet the prophet Joseph Smith needed help, and they were able to stay with the Whitmers uh, free of charge, basically, yeah. and and received help with the the writing. Um, but but it also says in here it says having much need for such timely aid in an undertaking so arduous and being informed that the people in the neighborhood of the Whitmers were anxious anxiously awaiting the opportunity to inquire into these things we accepted the invitation and accompanied Mr. Whitmer Mr. Whitmer to his father's house and there recited until the translation was finished and the copyright was secured and I think. That's a very big need that I just find it fascinating that the prophet is faced with a trial, a problem, and soon after he's given the solution. He's not exempt from from seeing a problem. Yeah. The solution doesn't come before the problem, you know? The problem comes, or not the problem, but but the need or the or the trial, right? You need to do this. You need to copyright this. Maybe he had no idea he had to seek a copyright. A person like him with such little education might not understand that. <laughs> but others like Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, Martin Harris would have had more experience in some of the things to say, you know what? You know, and it, it's funny because they all bring something, you know, to yeah. they bring their talents, they bring their experience, they bring their their in some cases, just the worldly possessions or the worldly knowledge, and, and it and it is a and it is a blessing and, a, and an answer to a prayer. I do find it interesting that repeatedly, almost the same answer to all of these questions and queries about what does the Lord want me to do, is met with verse six. And behold, I say unto you that the thing which will be of most worth unto you will be to declare repentance unto the people, that you may bring souls unto me that you may rest with them in the kingdom of my father. And that's repeated several times. But I find interesting that if we go back to verse to section 11, verse 21, where it says, uh, seek not to declare my word, but first seek to obtain my word and then shall your tongues be loose. Then if you desire, you shall have my spirit and my word and the power of God unto the convincing of man. So, the question is, well, the, the commandment kind of follows a pattern of keep my commandments, understand the doctrine, go share what you've learned. What is that really asking of us to, to cry repentance unto people? Is it stand on a box in a corner saying the end is nigh, you know, uh, condemning others? Probably not. 
Is it, I don't know, I, I go back to what is the most powerful testimony? And I'd have to go to a quote from President Hinckley of the most powerful symbol of our religion is the lives of our members. And that was one answer he gave during, he was giving tours of the temples and meeting houses and, and you know, some other religious leaders were asking, kind of saying, you know, you really don't have much here, <laughs> you know, what what's the greatest symbol, you know, and he said, well, the greatest symbol is the lives of our members. And I would say for this to be applicable to us, go cry repentance. What does it mean? Go, go argue on Facebook, <laughs> on, on comment sections, go, as soon as your neighbor tells you they're unhappy, you tell them why they're unhappy, you know? <laughs> Like, what, what is it that's really asking of us to cry repentance? And I go back to that verse. Seek not to declare my word, but seek first to obtain my word. And I would say, seek not to cry repentance, but seek first to repent. Then you'll understand how you will help others repent, how you'll bring people to Christ, how your example will be meaningful and impactful to others. Yeah, I think the most effective way to encourage someone to repent or call someone to repentance is, like you said, by being an example. But also, instead of saying, you got to straighten yourself out, your life's really messed up and this is why. Because that will have the exact opposite effect. And, well, actually, you're you're being a judge yourself. The The other way to go about that is to say, hey, we can be better than than we are. We're meant for more. It's an encouraging, a positive outlook on repentance, not being a punishment, but repentance being an opportunity to be, be better, to be more. And if you approach life like that, and if you approach helping other people like, hey, man, we're all in this together. We're all just trying to get to be better people and improve every day instead of it's time to start changing your ways because otherwise, you know, <laughs> And uh, instead of it's using uh, faith instead of fear to inspire change in people. And I think that that's kind of what he's saying here is, you know, cry repentance into this people. Well, first of all, be repentant. And second of all, make it a positive thing. Show people repenting is not a negative experience. Yes, there's anguish. Yes, there's sorrow. But the whole point is to come out the other end of that better than you were before, stronger and, and more wise than you were before. The early saints had continuous problems having a place to call Zion. They were trying to build Zion. They thought it would be here in Independence, or it would be here in Nauvoo, or it would be... And as much as they, they began to prosper in those places, but ultimately had to leave them for something that appeared worse, but then ended up better. And ultimately, to coming into the valley, to the Salt Lake Valley, building one of the best civilizations of its time. And to this day, that wasn't it. That was just a launching pad to taking the gospel to the rest of the world. Right. And even to this day, we're told the restoration is not done. There's parts that are done, but it's a continuous improvement. And it's almost like the saints were physically being taught to overcome things and improve upon them. In our day, we have a similar thing when we go to church and partake of the sacrament every week. 
we're told assess what you've done, see what you can correct, and improve it. This thought of continuous improvement, I think it's a I think it's an internal pattern that Heavenly Father is trying to teach us that to continuously improve is eternal life. Yeah. But we are so quick to look for a finish line. If we look for a finish line and a lawn chair and a sunset <laughs> on the beach and to get to that retirement uh, or that place of rest. But I think eternal rest is not what we think it is. <laughs> I think we are always to be continuously improving. I don't know. I, I just think as as the early saints and, and get excited and, and they come to the prophet and they ask him, hey, what do you think the Lord wants me to do? If if I were given this initially, I would have thought that really that's it. He's not going to tell me like there's gold under my farm and I can use that <laughs> to help everybody or, you know, it's it's very common. It's hard, so good things. And then when you reap them, go share them with others. And and that's kind of the essence of the gospel is when when you taste of the goodness of the tree of life, are you looking around to see, hey, where is my family? Where are they on the path? How can I encourage them? Knowing that everyone has to walk that path themselves. You can't walk it for somebody else. But you can surely encourage. You can surely help. And it's it's an interesting commandment given to them, knowing that they're about to face a lot of other Christians that are not going to include them, that are not going to want to listen, that are supposed to know better, but actually treat them with selfishness and with hurt, you know, and, and, and things like that, you know. So, you know, these, these trials, I, I just try to picture myself, what would it be like to live in that time, to be told, hey, the best thing you can do is help your neighbors and then you both can rejoice in heaven and then get ready for t two years or 14 years of your neighbors are going to try to kill you. Every <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I think a lot of times we, we make that same mistake. Not that they were making a mistake by asking, but we go in to a prayer, we go in seeking revelation and we want something very detailed. We want, an outline for the next five years. We want God to make our five-year plan for us. Here's what you're. Here's what I want you to do. Instead of going in there and saying, "Here's my five-year plan. Here's my ten-year plan. Whatever. Help me to achieve this, or help me know what I need to change, or or whatever." And we get a little bit maybe disappointed when the answer is just kind of like, "Hey, you know what? Stay the course. Do what you need. You know is right. Support your your neighbors and fellow ward members and." friends and family around you do what you can to be uplifting to others and it's like yeah but i feel like i'm meant for something bigger i feel like i'm meant for something more it's like that is literally the biggest thing you can do it seems like it's not because everyone is doing it and we love exclusivity and we love to be special right and we want to be highlighted somehow as exceptional among everyone else but the fact of the matter is the biggest work you can do is to help him in his work to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man that there's no bigger work than that and how do you do that it doesn't take selling your house and buying a, a mobile home in the shape of the book of mormon and dri or driving around the country and evangelizing the world you know 
It doesn't take that. What it takes is being decent, being uplifting, being lending service to people and sharing your testimony whenever you can. That's what he's asked us to do. And if that's too easy for you, then you're probably doing either an excellent job because you, you're doing it all the time or you're not doing it enough. I just feel like we, we often diminish that as being like, oh, that's too simple. I want something bigger. I want a bigger task. I want to have a, a mission to, to carry out for the Lord. Well, your mission is your entire life. You need to be constantly trying to improve and helping those around you to do the same. That's incredibly difficult. If you're doing it right, that's incredibly difficult. You will be relying on the Lord the entire way. But that's what kind of what he asked us to do. And that's what he's telling these men to do. And I, I don't know. I feel like 99% of us, when we ask, you know, Lord, what is it you want me to do? That's probably the same answer we're going to get. Because there's always ways we can be better at that. We can be better ministers. We can be better teachers. We can know the doctrine better. We can study better. We can control our anger better. We can, you know, all of that. All of that can be improved. Are you ready to go on to section 17? Yes. So a little bit of the background there. In Once again, in the Joseph Smith's Revelations book. And this is, by the way, available on churchofjesuschrist.org. You don't have to purchase it. It's... The full text is there. It's done by the Joseph Smith papers, and it's broken down by section. So it's really great as a resource. In their historical introduction to this section, it says, After both a passage in the Book of Mormon and a Joseph Smith revelation promised that three witnesses would testify of the gold plates, Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Martin Harris requested that they be given the opportunity. In response, Joseph Smith dictated this revelation in Fayette, New York, in June 1829. According to Joseph Smith's history, the heavenly messenger who delivered the plates to him in 1827 had commanded him not to show them to anyone. By March 1829, Emma Smith, Martin Harris, Reuben Hale, and possibly others had served as scribes for Joseph Smith as he dictated the translation, yet none of them had seen the plates. I'm going to stop right there because I personally I would find that very difficult. To be a scribe, to be there in the same room maybe, and to be like, can I just, I don't need to touch them. I don't need to look through them. Just let me see them. You know, that would be really hard <laughs> to have participated that closely. Then it goes on. That same month, Harris, whose wife strongly objected to his involvement with Joseph Smith, traveled to Harmony, Pennsylvania to obtain, in the words of a revelation, a witness that my servant Joseph hath got the plates which he hath testified he hath got. That same revelation, which Joseph Smith dictated after Harris's arrival in Harmony, spoke of a covenant with me, God, that he, Joseph Smith, should not show them except I commanded him, but also promised that three people would see the plates by God's power and thereafter testify to the world of their existence. Harris was then informed that if he was sufficiently humble, he would be one of the three witnesses. The same guy that lost 116 pages. He's come a long way. He's getting to the point where he's repented, the Lord sees that. And he tells him, if you're humble enough, if you can stay on this path, you can be one of the three witnesses. And then it also says, about this same time, Joseph Smith dictated revelation for Cowdery, declaring that in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established, and that God's words would be established by the testimony which shall be given. The revelation commanded Cowdery to assist to bring forth my work, language similar to that in the Book of Mormon passage that envisioned the book's future translator showing the plates to three witnesses, who would testify of them by the power of God and to assist to bring forth this work. This is similar to baptism and the priesthood in the sense that they read about this in the Book of Mormon and they were like, hey, what does this mean? 
we should probably ask about this. And if there gets to be three witnesses, I'd like to be one of them. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> the opportunity for them to kind of be like, uh, just saying, if you get any chance to influence this, I'd like to be one of those. No, I I thought it was interesting how this pattern of here's what we think, here's what we just read. Let's go ask the Lord. You yeah. know, is is I mean the experiences are different for everybody, but it should be a pattern that we try to emulate. Uh, one of the things that really stuck out in this section was how nice it feels like. Well, let's go ask the Lord, and <laughs> and they get an answer right. But it doesn't tell us sometimes how long it takes. It, it doesn't show us, you know, their work to get the answer. Yeah. We we understand from the beginning, Joseph Smith was pondering with what church to join for months, if not years. And he did his own experiments and tried to ask this person, ask that person. And now we're reaching a point where the prophet is a little getting more mature in his understanding. And the loop, the almost like the answer loop, the question and answer return, <laughs> uh, boolean, if you want to talk about code, uh, is much quicker. These tend to happen quicker and quicker, and he's he's he himself is also progressing, right? I don't know. I just thought that was interesting because sometimes we feel like I'm praying, I really want to know this, and nothing, or I'm confused, or I think it's maybe on myself that I want this so bad, so I'm like, I feel like this is the right thing because I wanted it to be the right thing, right? For me, what I've had to learn, that peace for me means clarity of thought. And when I have clarity of thought, when I have studied something out and I prepare myself and I ask the Lord, if everything feels clear, I feel like that's the right thing and it's worked out. When I continue to have doubts, I need to study more. I need to, it's, it's, it's not so much, it's almost as if the sun is shining. I need to get myself to a place where I can feel its rays. Not so much, I need to make sure the sun is shining because the Lord is doing his work. It's it kind of goes back to that thing where prayer is not so much to change God's will as as much as it is to align our will to His will. Right. I'll give you I'll give you some crazy example of you know, and this is a marital example. Early on in my marriage, I made decisions that I did not counsel my wife with, just because I thought they were good decisions for our family. Since then, I have learned. Even when the decision is apparently good, I need to counsel with my wife. And I need to respect if she has any feeling that this isn't the right thing. It is far more important that we're united, that the unity brings forth blessings more than the outcome of the decision. And as soon as I've learned that, I have seen that my ability to help my family make good decisions because we're doing it together, have become a lot better. We've made a lot better decisions and not and avoided some big mistakes and and received really good blessings. And that that is that has got me thinking a lot about councils and priesthood keys and authority and revelation that we see here with 
Joseph, they are having a small council together. They're studying it out. They're bringing it to the Lord. And even when they prayed to have the angel come, there comes a time when when he's going to come show the plates to, to I think it was the, the three witnesses, where there wasn't that unity. And it wasn't until someone left the circle and said, you know, it's it's my doubting heart or my my sins, whatever. And then the experience happens. There's just something about being united that really invites the spirit and really teaches us more about the deeper principles of some of these teachings. Yeah, the perfect example of that is in is in Saints Volume 1. There's a section where it's talking about exactly that. It says, they were particularly interested in certain passages from the Book of Mormon. In the course of the work of translation, Joseph Smith's history explained, we ascertained that three special witnesses were to be provided by the Lord to whom we, he would grant that they should see the plates from which the work, this work, the Book of Mormon, should be translated. Almost immediately after this discovery was made, Joseph wrote, it occurred to Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Martin Harris that they would have me inquire of the Lord to know if they might not obtain of him to be these three special witnesses. And finally, they became so solicitous and teased me so much that at length I complied. And through the Yerman Thome, I obtained of the Lord for them a revelation. So <laughs> you kind of have this idea that they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's going to be three witnesses? Yeah, that's what it says here. We we think we should do it. What do you think? I don't know, guys. You can have you can like picture this conversation where he's like, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if we should tell the Lord who those witnesses. I'm sure he'll come and tell us. He's done that before. Yeah, but maybe you can ask him if we can do it. Uh I don't remember the last time I asked about stuff, that didn't go so well with the 116 pages, Martin. Remember that? No, but come on, just ask, just ask. And so finally he's like, Okay, I'll ask. And got the revelation that yes, these these people can be the witnesses. The thing that always occurs to me, and it's in this in the lesson also. The section is we can remain true to what we know even if others reject us in the Sunday school lesson for this. And I think that a lot of these people were still well, all of these people were still very much the minority in their surroundings, in the sense that Almost no one believed Joseph. Almost no one engaged with this. Nobody wanted to be involved with this situation. These people did. And they probably faced a lot of opposition, even just being associated with him. And I think part of their desire to want to see the plates was a little bit of vindication for themselves. A testimony building experience, but also like, if I can see those plates and know that this is real and say that I saw them, then it doesn't matter what comes my way, right? doesn't matter who comes at me. I'm going to be able to say, you know what? I undeniably saw those plates. I can't deny that. No matter what else happens in my life, I'll at least be able to, to, to be stalwart in that. And so I think about how does that, how does that apply to us? Because we're not going to see the plates. But I think of all the experiences I've had where I've had an undeniable testimony given to me by the Spirit, where the Spirit has spoken to my soul and told me, Daniel, this is true. This is right. What you're doing is right. What you're saying is right. And I, I look at that as like my own little chance to glimpse something bigger than me. And to be able to say later on, 
I might have doubts about this. I might not understand this or that policy, but my foundation is rooted in those things. Those things that are undeniable. I cannot backtrack that because I know those are true. We all can have experiences like that. Through the gift of the Holy Ghost, we're, we're given the opportunity to uh, receive that witness from him. And yeah, we, we don't have to see the plates in order to have that strong testimony of their veracity. That That's really true because it's funny how uh, in this section, we touch upon this subject again that we've talked about before, about the word of God being like a two-edged sword. Mm. And what does that mean? In the past, I always thought it meant, oh, it's going to cut down your enemies. It's going to... It's it's a it's like a vindication verse about uh, God's word cuts down the the wicked, right? But then I started reading some of the example scriptures that come along with it. The one I liked, where I'll start this is in Matthew four four. But he answered and said, "It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God." So then I started thinking about that differently. How does how does a two-edged sword, God's word being like that, how does that apply to me? And if I need to live by his word, then then how, how does his word being so mighty and so precise and so can cut through? And, and, and I do think there is some of that where it cuts through the lies of the adversary. It cuts through the natural man to pierce you to the very soul. I always looked at it as an external weapon, you know, against mm -hmm. them. I never really thought about it against me. It's going to cut through all my deception, all the lies I tell myself. It's going to cut through my procrastination, through the things I lull away my, my, my better, the things I know better. And then I'm, it's going to cut through the natural man to just tell me how it really, really is. And then that, that led me to another scripture in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and 9, where I was thinking, well, why should we pay heed to the Lord's word? And why should we treat it as if it is a double-edged sword or you know, a mighty sword? And it says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, my, are, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So for us to, to feast upon the word of Christ, to feast upon the words of the Lord, we have to realize that sometimes we it might not make sense. And we have to be humble enough to say, You're, you know best. You know six, seven moves ahead. I'm only looking one move ahead. And one move ahead does not look good to me. Why should I bridle my passions? Why should I do this? Why can't I lie? Everybody else is doing it and they're getting immediate benefit from it. You know, mm -hmm. why, why, you know, why are these commandments seem to be restrictive? And the Lord is saying, you need to trust. I see much further than you can see. And along the path that they claim is prosperity, comes damnation and comes subjugation and comes you become a victim and, a, and 
and the natural man rules your your soul. Along this path of discipline, it starts out very, you know, like discipline, like a very narrow path. But then it opens wide to freedom because you'll be continue, you'll continue to progress forever. And, and then the last one I'll share, which is one of my favorite scriptures, is in 1 Samuel, where it says, But the Lord said unto Samuel, chapter 16, verse 7, But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not upon his countenance, or, nor or on the height of his statue, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And that, that to me just kind of brought me to a place where it's what the Lord values is very different than what we value. And if we are trying to be like him, if we're going to feast on his word, if we're going to go cry repentance unto this generation, should we not be using the same currency he's using? Should we not have the same value that he values? And that's part of changing our heart. That's part of gaining experience. It's part of every week realizing, oh, I could have done this a little better and then go do it a little better. Oh, that didn't quite feel right. Or, you know, it just we have to develop these, these muscles, these spiritual muscles and these mental pathways almost, like these mental exercises that take us first to consider ourselves. Where's our standing? Where can I improve? How can I move myself to the sunlight? Now that I'm in the sunlight, now what questions do I need to ask? And, and, and where do I go from here? Oftentimes we want, almost like a child, we want the result right away without understanding the path to get there. Yeah, I think that one of the, the good examples of what you're talking about is, is Martin Harris. Um, he was chosen to be one of the three witnesses. And on the day that they went into the forest in the woods to pray, Joseph kind of stopped him and said, you've got to humble yourself before your God this day and obtain, if possible, forgiveness of your sins. Then they and said later that day, Joseph led the three men into the woods near the Whitmer home. They knelt and each took a turn praying to be shown the plates, but nothing happened. They tried a second time, but still nothing happened. Finally, Martin rose and walked away, saying he was the reason the heavens remained closed. He was able to, to humbly look at himself and say, I'm not ready yet. I am impeding this. And I wonder how many times we have to be that way as well. We have to be humble enough to admit that we might be the reason why something isn't happening in our lives. That it's not the world being unfair to us. That it's that we're either spiritually or you know, not ready yet. And maybe that means taking a step back and saying, I gotta, I gotta refocus myself. And he got to see them almost immediately after that. But he had to take some time first. And he had to kind of check himself first and humble himself and show the Lord, I am going to step back and allow, I'm not going to impede the work. I want this to continue to go forward. But for a little bit, I'm going to remove myself from the group. They had this experience, and then Joseph went and met with him again uh, later. And he was able to see the plates. And then when they returned back from that, it says, uh, this is in, in the book Saints, Volume 1. Joseph and the three witnesses returned to Whitmer House later that afternoon. Mary Whitmer was chatting with Joseph's parents 
when Joseph rushed in the room. Father, mother, he said, you do not know how happy I am. He flung himself down beside his mother. The Lord has caused the plates to be shown to three more besides me. They know for themselves that I do not go about to deceive the people. He felt as if a burden had been lifted off his shoulders. They will now have to be- have to bear a part, he said. I am not any longer to be entire- entirely alone in the world. Martin came into the room next, almost bursting with joy. I have now seen an angel from heaven, he cried. I bless God in the sincerity of my soul that he has condescended to make me, even me, a witness to the greatness of his work. This is a guy who feels redeemed. You know, Martin Harris has been through a lot. A lot of it was his own doing. A lot of it was his wife pushing against him to not follow Joseph Smith. I mean, he's been through a lot of conflict internally. And in this moment, you know, he's finally, he's like, even me. Who made so many stupid mistakes? I got to to be a witness of this. And not even to speak of Joseph, who's like, oh, finally, it's not the burden isn't all on me. That must have been a huge relief for him to be able to at least be able to turn to other people and be like, you guys know that I'm not messing with people. You guys know that I'm not trying to take advantage of people. This is real. This is real. I wonder how many years he carried that. Yeah. That desire. And continuously his family being ridiculed, him being... It's probably harder for people to see people you love being ridiculed because of you than you yourself being ridiculed, you know? Well, he he found out about the plates and got them two years before that, right? In 1827. So for at least two years he's had them and hasn't been able to show them and hasn't been able to prove to anybody that they were real. So for two years at least... On top of that, the years that he's been involved in, you know, angelic visitations and stuff like that, where people have been vouching for him without really any reason to, (laughs) right? Other than that they received revelation themselves. They had promptings of the Spirit telling them that he was being honest and true. But for the first time ever, he can look at other people and be like, you know, you've seen it, right? I'm not alone in this. I don't have to carry this burden on my own. And I think when we look around, that that should be kind of the camaraderie we have with fellow members of the church, that we can look at each other and say, I might I might falter from time to time, but I know that those around me can can boost me up. I might be a little bit weak in my testimony, but someone should be able to come and say, hey, no, 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 you know this is true. I'm here with you. And yeah, there's a lot of opposition and there's a lot of temptation and a lot of Things saying, you know, this or that isn't true, or this is a waste of time, or whatever. But I'm here with you. We're in this. I think I think we make some dangerous assumptions as individuals. It, with, with good intentions, we make the assumptions. But we don't realize, for example, like Joseph, how many times in his heart did he have this desire to not be the only one carrying this burden? And it wasn't until even later, until he was able to, to organize the Quorum of the Twelve, and, and the keys were also given to the Quorum, that, that's probably like even more relief, you know? Yeah. Even more knowing that if I die, it's not dead, this work. But also, isn't it interesting that for, this probably for him was something he thought about often, prayed about, and probably went to the Lord many times and said, just wait, just wait, <laughs> you know? Can I just tell my wife? Can I just show my wife? No, you just wait. Well, it's almost like 
we assume that being righteous or being a prophet, which we think is the most righteous you can be, right? We assume that the, the, the road is, is paved in gold. It's easy. It's downhill all the way, you know. <laughs> and so then we don't realize that they have challenges. And to them, they're real challenges, just as your challenges are real as well. And one of the things I think that Satan loves to do is to try to make us feel isolated in our problems. This is only happening to you because you're not good enough. Or if you were like Nephi, you wouldn't doubt, which Nephi didn't doubt, but he had many questions to which he worked on getting an answer to. But you're not like him, you know? And 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 so, and that's where these dangerous assumptions we make is, okay, I'm cleaning up my life. I'm doing everything I should be doing. Whew, all my problems should be going away, right? <laughs> and and the, the lesson is, is a lot of problems, especially the ones that are self-inflicted by our own bad decisions, go away pretty immediately when we start making good decisions. And some problems we never have to deal with when we stay within the confines of the commandments, with with between the guardrails of the commandments is what I mean. And then other problems are just part of this life. Some of them take time. Some of them are health. Some of them are relationships. Some of them are a little bit of everything. And I think we are to go through this life having sampled a little bit of everything. There is no express VIP lane. It didn't happen to the Savior. We can't expect it to happen to us. He had to feel everything. And we are not asked to go and descend below at all. But we are asked to take up our cross and to follow him. And take up our burdens and to feel a little bit what he has gone through. And that's exactly what these witnesses were meant to do it wasn't just okay now now you're in the club you've seen the, the scriptures you've seen the plates it, that wasn't the point right the point was help joseph carry this burden but also you are now among a privileged few who can testify directly for this forever and in the book revelations in context it says as the manuscript was prepared for printing cowdery whitmer and harris signed a joint statement that has been included in each of the more than 120 million copies of the Book of Mormon printed since then. It reads in part, And we declare with words of soberness that an angel of God came down from heaven, and he brought and laid before our eyes, that we beheld and saw the plates and the engravings thereon. And we know that it is by the grace of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ that we beheld and bear record that these things are true. That is really why this occurred, so that they could fulfill that prophecy from the Book of Mormon, that there could be three witnesses that would go out and testify to the entire world. We know this is true. We've seen it. And we bear witness for that forever. Signed your name. It's in every copy of the Book of Mormon. Obviously, my testimony is not going to be in every single Book of Mormon. But that doesn't mean that I also don't have a responsibility to testify about those things I mentioned earlier that are the roots of my testimony. When you've been given that, that treasure, that something that's an undeniable fact that the Spirit has testified to you, something being true, it's not to be kept a secret. It's not, it is a very sacred experience, but that doesn't mean that that's meant to be preserved only for you. 
the reason why you have that is to strengthen yourself and to help others be strengthened as well. And in appropriate times to share it with other people, you know, why it is you have a testimony of that. That's the example that, that we've been given. I may never see the plates, but the things that I do know, I should be just as eager to share or just as willing to share at the right time. Let us be awake and not be wary of well-doing. For we are laying the foundation of a great work, even preparing for the return of the Savior. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me.